Welcome to Future Generations from Octopus. In this podcast, we take a look at our rapidly changing world and discuss what impacts this will have both on businesses and investments. We invite experts to discuss a wide range of topics and give their view on what businesses need to do, not only to contribute to the just transition, but also to thrive in this changing environment. Now, for complete transparency, our first two episodes are recordings from a webinar series that we put together for Octopus employees. Although some of the questions are specific to Octopus, we feel the content is just too good not to share more widely and think this will form a great starting point leading into a more traditional podcast format for future episodes. In our first episode, our Impact and Sustainability Director, Kat Shenton, speaks to Nigel Topping and James Cameron about COP26, which is to be hosted in Glasgow in November 2021. This recording is from October 2020, but is a very interesting insight into the importance of the COP process and the significance of the UK hosting the COP this year. With that, let's dive straight into Nigel's introduction. Right. Yes. Th- thanks, Kat. It's lovely, lovely to join you and to and to join the conversation with with James. Um, uh, so I guess the, the the starting point is my is my current role, and I'll quickly tell you how I got here. So I, I have this a role called the high level climate action champion for COP26, um, which is a rather grand sounding role um, with a very vague mandate, um, uh, which which I rather enjoy because it's a, it gives me an opportunity to innovate. So the the, the role was created in Paris. So as part of the um, Paris Agreement, the, the, the parties to that agreement, the, the countries who are signatories to the UN Convention, decided that um, in recognition of the reality that sovereign countries alone cannot deliver a total transformation of the world economy to get to zero carbon, that they needed somebody in the process who was championing the, the work of what they call the non-state actors. So that's business, investors, cities, states and regions um, and, and civil society. So, so, so that, that's my job is to be that, that, that champion working with a very big um, community of organizations driving that forward. My, my background originally in, in the private sector in, in manufacturing for about 20 years sort of consulting and then running and then owning manufacturing businesses. Um, but I've been working in this kind of nexus of investment, business policy around climate change for about 15 years now. Um, largely driven by my by my love of wild cold places um uh, having spent quite a lot of time in the arctic and patagonia as a young man on slightly mad climbing trips and james how about you well i'm um, the first connection with and thank you very much for including me in this conversation and uh, nice to have all of you uh, out there connected to to what is a very important conversation um my connection with Octopus, first of all, as I'm on the Renewably, Renewable Energy Investment Trust, ORIT, board as, a, as a, uh, a non-executive director. I have my own little advisory company, James Cameron & Co. My origins are in law. I, I was a barrister and practiced law for many years as an international lawyer and taught law as well. And I guess I'm, I'm really an advocate in, its, in the more, most general sense of the word. I've had a part to play in several organizations which are themselves forms of advocacy from the Center for International Environmental Law, which was still going strong in, in Washington, to the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, that Nigel and I both served for, for many years. And uh, I was the first person to write in the legal literature about state responsibility for climate change. A long way ago, um, late 80s. And I helped to build a coalition of small island states 
called AOSIS, who are still very prominent and, and I'd like to think uh, rather influential over the climate negotiations. And I've had uh, the opportunity to advise uh, the presidency of the climate negotiations on more than one occasion. So I, I did, uh, I was a senior advisor to Morocco during their presidency and then Fiji immediately following that. And now I'm part of something called Friends of COP26, which is a slightly looser advisory group, works closely with Nigel, um, helping the UK government as president of COP26. And part of my life is still very much associated with entrepreneurship, small businesses that I work with, sometimes on the board. Um, I have a long-standing interest and connection with property and real estate and green buildings. Climate Change Capital was the organization I helped to form. We had a green buildings fund, a property fund. I was on the Green Building Council for many years. And I see that as a very valuable area for innovation and change processes for realizing more than uh, financial return from the investment of property. So lots to connect with, uh, with all of you out there. Thank you. Before we dive into COP26, uh, could you help us? I think we all know what climate change is, but we hear a lot of different targets. So we hear this kind of 1.5, 2 degree, 3.5 degree. Where do those numbers come from? And what do they mean? Why are they important? I'll go, James, first. You go first. Um, well, the first thing to say is that we we always hear about whether we, whether it's 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees or 3 degrees, they're always compared with the pre-industrial average. So it's like, that's the, um, it's the sort of single figure summary of the effect of human activity on the climate. A couple of important things to point out. It's a global average. And actually, temperatures rise more above land than sea. So if we're about 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial now, it, we're more like two degrees over land than over sea because it's a global average, and a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the globe is is sea. The other thing is that it is regionally different, and that the 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 increase in in high latitudes is even more. So you'll have seen some of the um, really concerning events around permafrost, frost thaw, and fires, and uh, Arctic sea ice melt because you're getting four, five, six degrees of warming already in some of those areas. Um, yeah, and I think the, 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 the thing that the final thing I'd say is, um, you know, one and a half, two, two and a half degrees doesn't seem like that much when we just think about our normal lives. But um, you don't have to read much, you know, you have to read very deeply into the scientific summaries to realize that these are very, very dangerous transformations. First of all, in and of themselves, I mean, we're already seeing a massive increase in extreme weather events, like three times extreme weather events already since 30 years ago. And you've seen it this year with the, you know, a third of Bangladesh being underwater and California wildfires and and you could go on. But the, the, the other thing to point out is that the, the world's climate system is non-linear. So it's subject to tipping points where we move into a different phase state. So if we, it's not just like as we put more CO2 in the atmosphere, the temperature that the climate changes in a linear way, it, it could flip. So you, you suddenly release the melting of an ice sheet or the, or the transformation of the Amazon into savannah. And those things then create sort of step changes in the climate, which are much, much more concerning than even the already damaging uh, incremental changes. So all of that, is, is helpful to understand why these numbers are picked out. I'll just add a couple of other observations. One, 
it's the rate of change that is the problem for for all living things not 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 the necessarily the number but the rate of change and our capacity to adapt to it secondly it's a huge system a really big system a climate system highly complex with feedback mechanisms that we're learning about all the time when i first started working on this of 30 odd years ago we didn't know the half of what we know now and we now unfortunately are measuring the things we most feared all those years ago. Politically, and, and indeed in our ordinary lives, we know that we work better sometimes when we have deadlines, we have targets, we fix a number to aim at. We even can, we can understand that sometimes the number is a little bit arbitrary. We've picked a number to aim at in order to change behavior. And we fight over those numbers symbolically. So in the negotiations, choosing 1.5 versus two as a target is all about urgency, acceleration of action, compelling others with more power to make a difference, to do more in order to protect our interests. That's very much the view from the small island states. There's nothing they can do in their own jurisdictions to protect them from the consequences of climate change because their economies are too small. They have to persuade through negotiation, through an international legal agreement, others to reduce their emissions in order to be able to contemplate you know, future prosperity and survival. Some of these small islands will become uninhabitable, largely because of sea level rise and salt water incursion into their fresh water supplies as much as from hurricanes or damage to ocean reefs and the like. So, you know, those are the key factors to bear in mind. Post-industrial change uh, as a benchmark, rate of change being the real issue, uh, numbers that are targets that are designed to change behavior in order to reduce risk, and a political battle fought out in a legal context to set more aggressive targets to reduce risk. And the final thing I would say here is the trajectory, trajectory that we are on is completely unsustainable. And it doesn't really matter what the upper edge is because long before we've hit the upper edge, we're in deep, deep trouble as a society. And there's a piece of work that I, I don't know whether it's how easy it is to get, but the Foreign Office did about three years ago to try and assess rate of change and the probability of change using expertise out of the city, basically, the insurance industry are very good at, at doing probabilistic risk analysis. And they simply said that over a hundred year period, there was a 50% likelihood or probability of the business as usual trajectories occurring, which produced a warming in the order of four to six degrees over that hundred years. Now, in a way, it doesn't really matter whether we hit six, because if we hit four, it's a game over for us. Forget it. I mean, we'll we'll be fighting ourselves long before we reach four. So that's why setting these targets earlier, even though many people think it's too hard to get to 1.5 degrees already, helps galvanise action. So what is the current target that everybody agrees we need to hit? And what's the current trajectory? So where are we headed and, and where do we actually want to head to? So the, 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 the Paris Agreement actually lays out a landing zone. It's, it's, it's 
in some ways deliberately vague, um, but we're seeing that ratchet. So the Paris Agreement says we, that we need to aim for well below two degrees with, with I think the phrase is best efforts, but James is the lawyer, he'll, he'll remind me if I'm wrong, um, to reach 1.5. In fact, to James's point, it was the small island states literally chanting 1.5 to stay alive, which helped tip the sort of moral compass to include that as a, as a range. Both of those importantly mean getting to zero net zero and we can talk about that you know so that, so that the, the the balance of what we emit with what is drawn down either either mechanically or biologically um is zero um and so the the, the real question is when do we need to get to zero the, the the ipcc the international panel on climate change published a specific report on that question there's a difference really between 1.5 and 2 in 2018 since then we've seen a quite a rapid normalization of zero by 2050 net zero by 2050 as being our shared goal it's not quite been negotiated as that but i think in the real economy and, and, and increasingly with, with both with china south korea and japan all in the last few weeks making clear their commitment to net zero um uh, that's becoming the the task and in a way that's much easier to orientate ourselves around than 1.5 or 2 because of the obvious question is what do we have to do to get to 1.5 well to get to zero you've got to get to zero it's actually quite simple could you could you explain a little bit more about what net zero is and what it means for us? James, you want to have a go at the, explaining the net bit? So we're, we're at a stage now where um, we have to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. We have to we have to do that in order to to get our emissions, uh, to get the concentrations of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere at a level that is that is safe. Now, you can do that with biological processes trees, grasses, all the things that absorb CO2 in, in the natural world. Um, lots of interest in ocean, oceans and ocean sequestration and seagrasses and the like. There's a lot of things that can be done with natural systems and will be done and will be a priority uh, for action, I think, in the next uh, five years or so. Uh, and they, they all help um, produce a sort of net balance that is, that is set against our emissions. And again, this is a concept quite hard for people to, to grasp. It's not enough to reduce emissions uh, of greenhouse gas emissions from, say, transportation or industrial processes because of the history of our emissions being uh, remaining in the atmosphere for a very long time. The key reference point is the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's what's causing the warming of the heating and creating these unstable uh, systems that might, might fracture and break and create feedback mechanisms that are more more obviously disruptive to, to to life on earth so we have to reduce our emissions certainly we have to re reduce the concentrations of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere and we have to draw down carbon in natural systems or possibly through engineered solutions like direct air capture or or sequestering uh, carbon dioxide uh, uh, in in structures that can hold the carbon there for for a very long period of time. All of those things need to happen and they will give us a net number. Uh, and that net number needs to be zero by various dates. But at the moment, what seems to be happening is a sort of consensus between countries and, and large emitters and you know, big corporate players that, it, that, that it's somewhere between 2035 and 2050 is the, is the space that we have to, uh, to get this under, under control. Okay, it's kind of it's pretty scary when you put it like that. 
why what do you think cop i mean what what is cop 26 and how is cop 26 going to help us achieve that goal big question sorry james you should, you should describe the the, the I, yeah. let, me, let me let me let me let me frame it and i was trying i always think of it as three bits there's a there's a technical piece of negotiation between 190 plus countries and maybe james could explain that in a bit more detail then 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 there's the national plans which have to be submitted every five years that was part of the construct of paris so this is the five-year anniversary of paris right now which is why the summit on the 12th of december which the prime minister's hosting with the president of france and with Secretary General is going to be an important moment when we hope many countries come forward with more ambitious plans. And then the third bit is the bit that I'm sort of tasked with is working with everybody else, private sector, civil society, local governments to demonstrate momentum in the real economy. But James, I think the, the bit that's in a way the hardest to understand is the is what actually goes on in the negotiating rooms in Glasgow. Yeah, and it's and it's hard to remain positive about it. I mean, as I said, I've been doing this for 30 years as an advocate for it, have been a negotiator advising a presidency. And it still requires an act of will on my part to keep being interested in this process because it's, a, it's an international lawmaking process among a lot of actors of very different types of, to different types of government, different stages of development, different capacities to implement. You know, imagine, think of, think of, your, think of your own working lives. Imagine putting 190 companies together some of which are corner shops and some of which are Amazon, and, and ask them to come up with a common understanding of the problem, a common uh, pathway for solving it, uh, fighting over whose resources are used, who had responsibility for the past, who's got responsibility for future emissions. After you, you go first. When you've done something, I'll do something. This, they're fiendishly difficult and occasionally they get stuck and, and progress is brutally slow and insufficient to deal with a you know, widespread understanding of the need and scale of the problem, which is why you need those other bits that Nigel talked about, who are, which are part of the process. Sometimes you can make progress in the real world of real relationships with levers of power in finance and business and technology and civil society, even whilst the intergovernmental process is stuck. But what we're trying to do this year and I think we're doing okay after a shaky start, is we're trying to pull these all three parts together, provide a platform in Glasgow next year for the best contributions to the solutions, wherever they come from, sub-federal states, California, cities, all the things that Nigel is doing, coalitions of people who've got answers in their sector, have them use the moment, use the event the symbolic gathering to show off how we're going to do this technologically, entrepreneurially, socially, you know, with the organizational capacity we've got. The plan section, the middle section, which is the design change that was made in Paris in 2015, simply says, come to these negotiations with a plan that you have made at your national level that you are going to implement so that collectively we deliver the objective we agreed in Paris. You do it your way. We're not going to top down tell you how to do it, but we want to see something to compare with your peers to show off what you're actually going to deliver. And this last week's been very important. As Nigel had mentioned, we, we've had, well, just before we had China and the EU very carefully coordinating their offerings, their plans, 
for the next section of, you know, the next you know, five years or so. And then this week we've had Japan and Korea step up. So these are big economies making big commitments to fundamentally alter the shape of their economies to decarbonize over a relatively short period of time. And, and that's also what COP26 is about. There's one final point that we've touched upon that needs perhaps a bit more conversation because it's hard, is how we do, how we find solutions in nature, how we build solutions in the natural world with all the other attributes that we know is associated with a restored natural world in biodiversity, in uh, st stopping the appalling loss of, of species, in natural systems that help us with our own well-being and sense of, uh, of satisfaction with how we live wherever we are in the world. That's also part of the agenda for COP26. Thank you. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that this, this sort of level of technical negotiations is almost impossible, but that really good progress is being made at the level below with the national plans. Yeah, I mean, a small nuance there. It, it's, it's just hard. So you make incremental progress and you try and write it down in a text like any other lawmaking process. It's no different. It's just we're still learning how to do it amongst countries, particularly when there are new entrants to the to the to the legislative uh, place. You know, it's not like a parliament in that respect. It, it is it is an attempt to make law for the whole of humanity. It's that, that's what we're trying to do. No wonder it's difficult. But the text still matters. So that's why I haven't given up on it, despite all these all the frustrations, because when you can get agreement, it's much easier to do the work that's necessary across national boundaries, across different cultures, and, and not only to share the burden, but also to share the opportunity of the shift because you create bigger marketplaces for the solutions. So you should see, this is just, this is just the way we make law at the global level. And we, have, we struggle to do that at the national level often, right? It's just, it, that's it, it's hard to do, it's necessary, it's flawed. It doesn't quite get us where we want to go fast enough, but it's absolutely vital and you can't give up on it because there aren't really, there are no better alternatives for getting that level of agreement that is required to solve a complex global problem like climate change. And, and Kat, if, I, if I could add, I think just so that everybody understands, um, a couple of the peculiarities of the process. First of all, it requires complete unanimity, which is Consensus, unusual. Consensus, Nigel. Consensus, sorry. I don't, I don't, it's different, and that's a, that's a law. It's really important that it's consensus, not unanimity, because you can build consensus even when someone is resisting it. It's just very easy to break consensus if only one or two people do resist, and that's what slowed us up for the years. Right, but, but the point I'm making is it requires every party to agree yeah. every every word yeah. in every paragraph of any text. Correct. Right? So you, you, you effectively have a single party veto. So it's very it's a very high bar democratically, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's one thing that's worth remembering. That's sort of special. You could you could say it's a design flaw, but it's it's the process. The other thing that's worth mentioning is that something like 120 of those 190 plus countries self-identify as being less developed or vulnerable. So, you know, all the small island states, of course, are vulnerable. Any of the low-lying states like Bangladesh, um, most of the sub-Saharan African countries, you know, with, with, with more fragile economies. And, and so, 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 in fact, the, the bulk of the parties to the convention 
self-identify as being on the wrong side of the asymmetry of cause and effect you know we yeah. we burnt the coal to cause it they're suffering from it um so that's a big part of the politics it also remember they have very few um multilateral fora where they have any real agency they're not in the g7 they're not in the g20 um they might they might get a seat at the security council once once in a generation so this is almost uniquely a very important multilateral forum which is deciding the future of our energy system and our industrial system effectively which is very geopolitical where they have a voice so um that's why that's one reason why for example any calls to make glasgow a virtual negotiation event are being stridently resisted by those countries saying no that will bias it towards those with better access to um to bandwidth and more ability to 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 get around the virtuality somehow and you will effectively be excluding us from this one forum where we really feel like we have a voice the the the, the moment when i really understood the power of this was as um I think it was Tony De Bruyne, who James, yeah, who sadly no longer with us, who yeah. led this All Island States negotiating group that, that James talked about. He was one of the first people to speak after the gavel came down in Paris, and Paris was really a moment when, when really you could say humanity came together in the interest of the whole rather than um, in the interest of individuals. And he looked at Laurent Fabius, who was the French Foreign Affairs Minister, who presided brilliantly over. And he said, this was COP21, remember, the 21st annual meeting of the parties. And he said, I think he said something like, Brother Laurent, I want to thank you. We feel listened to for the first time ever. Yeah. And I, you know, I still get, I still, quite, I still sort of choke up a little bit. It, it was a sudden realization that people who's, for whom literally this is existential, you know, those, some, of those some of those countries are heading to be underwater. They're having, you know, Kiribati is having to buy land in Fiji to contemplate yeah. moving its entire population yes. to foreign land. So th there's, that's why the, the politics is not something that's very easy for us to understand. You know, if, if the EU seems complex, then take it to another order and, and passion and impassioned, then take both those complexity and passion to another level and you get a sense of what's at stake at the UNFCCC. They're extraordinary events too. I mean, they, are, they really are. <laughs> because all those three elements are there and they're huge. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people who gather and it, it has sometimes an element of trade fair because people are showing off their solutions. It's a massive civil society gathering and it is this kind of experiment in, in how we make law for, for all of us where there is something more than sovereign state interest. Um, in fact, one of the things that's striking about it is that the, the idea that there might be an independent sovereign state interest, i.e. an I win, you lose negotiation, is so ridiculous in this context. And yet people still, they have their minds trained that way and they, and they, go, they go in and it's completely useless. Uh, the, the only effective way of protecting your own interests, whether you're a tiny Pacific Island state or, or the United States of America, is to understand that this is about humanity and a single system called with planetary boundaries. And it's all about how you can sort out the solutions together that there isn't a I win, you lose strategy that has any value at all. Yes, yeah, so, so this one's in, in the UK. 
Um, yeah. So taking place in Glasgow, um, it all feels it feels rather overwhelming, and it feels it feels quite distant to to most people. What does the fact that this is happening in the UK mean for us? And also, I'm going to ask two questions at once. How how can that what what does that mean for Octopus? What does it mean for us as individuals? How could these kind of global negotiations? How can we help, or or what what would be the result for us? Well, I mean, I think there's three things that really matter about the UK hosting it. What what the, the first is that the UK is a very sophisticated capable diplomatic nation and we have a track record of leading on climate change you know we, we are the, the, the most progressive climate change act with the climate change committee that's independent of the political cycle that advises um, the government um, and we have an ability to mobilize diplomatic staff who are very sophisticated around the world and those two attributes of having the capability to manage what i think is the most important and challenging the political process in the world in the probably of the decade right there's not many countries who have that capability the french have that capability that was one of the reasons that cop 21 was a success um the, the, the americans certainly if they um turn their mind to it, have that capability and they did mobilize their diplomatic efforts very much in the run-up to cop 21 of course what their diplomatic focus will be next year will very much depend on the election but that's one reason why the uk is really important as a host is we have the track record and the capability to deliver a success. And there's not many countries who have both of those. Um, I'd say why is it important for the country? Um, first of all, you know, there's no doubt that the UK um, has lost a lot of credibility and soft power around the world in the last three or four years. So delivering both a world leading domestic agenda on climate change and then a diplomatic success of COP26 and G7, remember the UK hosts the G7 presidency next year, and that's going to be central to the global recovery. Does the, is, is it just a normal kind of rather bland communique, or is the G7 actually going to mobilise the global community in the year of the climate COP to make sure we have a global recovery, not just a global north recovery? And, and finally, it's important for, from a point of view of industrial competitiveness. Yeah. The, 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 I mean, the analogy I always use is remember in, in the 70s in the oil crisis, Detroit and the US government took that signal and did nothing with it. They carried on producing big gas guzzlers, as a result of which Detroit started its massive decline. And half of the cars on the roads in America now are um, smaller, fuel efficient European and Asian cars. And if, and if Detroit keeps going the way it's going right now with an EPA winding back regulations, then the rest of the cars on American roads in five years' time will be electric European and Asian cars. Um, they may all be Chinese if Europe doesn't move fast enough. So there's a real issue of industrial competitiveness here. And th this, I think, comes to, in particular, I mean, and, and James is much more, James's field is a, with his experience as an investor. But from my point of view as an industrialist, in my background, this is a unique time of predictable disruptive change. Okay, not exactly predictable in the timing, but no one's going to buy a combustion engine car in 20 years. I don't think anyone will buy one in Europe in the next 10 years, in 10 years time. So that means if you're investing on the basis of some of the, if I can be blunt, crap linear projections of people like the IEA, yeah. um, then you're going to get it wrong. I remember, I remember talking to Jeremy Grantham, who's a, a, who's a sort of contrarian hedge fund investor, about the fact that the IEA, which is the International Energy Agency, had a normative effect either 
that the investment community believes their central forecast and invests on the on, on the basis of that. He laughed out loud. He says, that's great for people like me because yeah. that's so dumb because it's so obviously and demonstrably wrong and not representative of the way that we know industrial systems transformation takes place. So for me, the most important thing for um, for investment community is to be aware of and to be tracking very carefully the way that that change goes exponential. And so when the when when the FT says, oh, we're only at 5% electric vehicles, to James's earlier point, it's the rate of change that matters, not the absolute. Because when you go exponential, if you're doubling every 18 months, if you're only at 5% now, then you're going to go 10, 20, 40, 80, and boom, within about seven years, the whole market's transformed. And if you're three years behind that trend, you just can't catch up. And that's what the European vehicle manufacturers right now, all the CEOs in private are saying, shit, I wish we'd started five or 10 years earlier. Because they can't, they, can't, they, can't, they can't catch up. They haven't got models in the pipeline in many sectors for two, three, four years. And UBS is now saying that electric vehicles will reach sticker price parity by 2024. Why anyone would buy a combustion engine vehicle in 2025 when it's more expensive to buy, more expensive to run, dirtier, noisier, less cool, very much so by then is a mystery to me. And you can see fleet owners who are much more total cost of ownership driven than sticker price already making that transition. So I think that's the real thing to be on the lookout for is those exponential um, industrial transformations. Yeah, and I think just to, just to concentrate on the UK for, 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 the, for the next few months, you're going to get a lot of announcements, a lot of, a lot of the people that NIGHT is already working with, uh, feeling more confident about positioning themselves for this, this shift. Um, that's something that, that Octopus needs to be on top of because there'll be peer groups forming that have their own raised ambition. We can do more. And you build up a, um, a set of relationships with the, the holders of power, the levers of power that can reshape a marketplace. We've seen that happen with renewables and, and it will continue, but there's another stage, renewables, storage, digital demand side management and electric vehicles. They're all, all these technologies are converging. We need the right regulatory frameworks to, to accelerate that. That's all, up, that's all in play in this next period of time. COP26 will, will provide a reference point for all that policy activity. It will also provide a reference point for investors looking to back a change in the rules. And it provides opportunity for corporate M&A activity too, as people start to look around saying, okay, well, things are gonna move. I've got some competence, but I haven't got it all. I better make an acquisition. And the other factor is that because of COVID and because of the way our economies are going to be significantly affected by governmental decision-making. They're gonna own more of the economy than they have done for a generation. How they spend their money in accordance with their policy commitments is gonna make a huge difference to, to a private sector actor. Uh, there's a lot of material around the world now, uh, very strongly evident in Europe, that the, the plans to stimulate the economy in times of COVID and with climate change as a of reference problem will direct capital flows. Choices will be made about what infrastructure gets built, how it gets built, where it gets built, where jobs can be created most easily uh, to stimulate what will be a shocking employment uh, market in the next uh, two, three years. And whilst there's still not been sufficient change in that direction, there's a lot of pressure to go that way, including in this country and I'm hopeful that we'll see some more 
signs of that before the end of the year, not least because of our role as president, which pr pr provides some pressure on our leaders to rise to that challenge. Yes, yeah, so we've had a question from someone in the audience on that. So how, how, I think you've, you've slightly answered it, but I'll, I'll put it forward again. So how will the countries at COP26 focus on climate and not let the pandemic dominate the narrative? By, by converging them. Combined. But by converging them as best they can without without artifice. You know, if you if you just began with how you stimulate an economy with public money and public policy, you can make choices, you can select where to put effort, how to prioritize, and you can do that with climate change in mind. You can you can have the climate change crisis sort of built into the economic stimulus by choosing to focus on uh, building the infrastructure of the future, looking at your urban developments. I mean, just, just to, give, to give you a, an idea of how much we could do if we really tried to align these interests. With urban development, you, you can look down on a city, especially one that is growing as opposed to an ancient one that needs some, you know, change, but one that's growing and say, okay, is this space fit for the kinds of evidence that we have now about climate change? Is this going to be absorbing heat well or radiating heat well? Have we got enough green space to regulate, to cool the city? How, what are we going to do with the rainfall patterns that we now see? How are we going to deal with runoff? What about our sewage and, and drainage systems? Can they cope? If you just look down, reframe and look down, look at the surfaces. Are they the surfaces you would have in a world that is warming as rapidly as this, where some cities are going to be unbearably hot for humans to live and work in? Well, no, they're not. Well, how would you change that? Well, you'd think very hard about green spaces. There are, there are jobs associated with, with greening our infrastructure. You think very hard about putting renewables on, on rooftops. You think about more reflective surfaces. You think about changing our cooling systems and if you're in a very, particularly in a very hot part of the world. That's all work. There's a lot of work involved with that. There are jobs involved in those transformations. And, and there are also things that you can stimulate with that combination of public money and, and public policy. And private money will follow that, you know, that lead. And you could do this in every jurisdiction. Every place in the world has got a version of that, either with their urban development, uh, whether it's building infrastructure for electric vehicles, uh, rethinking how you move people and goods around. It's actually a really stimulating, creative period, a crisis like this. And I'm confident that we're going to make some better selections of where to put our resources. And how much do you know so far about the key aspects of the UK plan? Well, um, I mean, there's, a, there's the UK plan for COP and then there's a kind of UK domestic plan. So, uh, for the, I mean, for the let me deal with those of course they're related to the i mean for the cop and there's a big emphasis on running uh, you know and this is really important to my point earlier about about process and representation running a really inclusive cop there have been mistakes made by some past presidencies of um effectively not in, not effectively including all the all the countries in the process and that very quickly gets you gets the, the sort of emotional context of a fragile negotiation 
in a, in a dark place and it's very difficult to get to that consensus point that James talks about if, if a whole group is feeling unheard um, or excluded from a conversation so 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 that's that's part of the UK plan um, but the second thing is, is you know there's a massive mobilization of the di diplomatic um, capability of the UK I mean they have climate attaches in every country they have all the all the embassy all the ambassadors very well trained they have appointed John Merton, the former ambassador, as overall international engagement lead, and four other very um, experienced ambassadors as climate ambassadors. That's all they're doing regionally. And 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 um, Vijay, who was um, ambassador to Brazil, has just been appointed in the new FCDO to oversee all of that work, as 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 well as global health and the Americas. So it's a it's a big job. He's one of the most sort of senior positions in the FCDO. And then then the UK government's focusing on five sectoral campaigns: energy transition which is particularly about accelerating coal phase out, which with the recent news from China, um, South Korea and Japan has had a, had a real boost. And I see Vietnam have just um, uh, put on ice all of their remaining planned yeah, coal power stations. Mm -hmm. So I think we're now looking at the last coal-fired power station being built in the next few years and, then, and actually an accelerated phase out as the cost of renewables comes down below even existing coal. The second campaign that the UK government's running is to accelerate the phase out of combustion engines. So we're expecting, um, you know, the UK currently has a law saying 2040 and the government's finishing off a consultation process. We're expecting to hear any time between now and the 12th of December um, what, what the government's decision will be on that date. Some people are suggesting it might be as early as 2030, which would really be world leading for a major economy. There, there are, I think the Netherlands and the Nordics are even more ambitious than that, but no one with uh, in, a, in a sort of top 10 global economies has anything like that ambition. Um, finance is a really, really big issue. So of course, um, Mark Carney is doing a lot of the work there on the kind of regulatory shift towards much stronger financial disclosure um, and creating much more liquid carbon markets. And, and Nick Stern is doing a lot of work looking at how to mobilise the multilateral finance to leverage in private capital for the sort of scale of transformation that's needed across the world. Then the fourth and fifth campaigns are on adaptation and resilience, which is um, particularly politically important in the global south, where the, most of the most of the vulnerability lies, and on nature-based solutions, which James also talked about with um, with Zach Goldsmith being a particular champion of uh, of more work on that. And the UK recently signing up to a big leaders pledge on nature. So that those are the big, and then then, then domestically, right? Well, you you, you it's the, the the big things that we're expecting to hear on are that combustion engine phase out. Um, uh, a, a revision of the UK's approach to export finance. There was a lot of criticism for a recent um, UK export finance decision to fund some a gas project in Mozambique. Um, and then the, the, the really big deal will be what is the government's nationally determined contribution or the, the, the this new five-year plan which we're required to submit, which, which um, given that the Prime Minister called the world's heads of government to come together on the 12th of December, it would be reasonable to assume that the Prime Minister is planning on announcing that figure then. And... Um, the, you know, the Europe's looking like it's going to set in law a 55% reduction by 2030 as its target. I think most of the expectations are that the UK will come up with a target which is in the high 60s, so significantly more ambitious than Europe, um, uh, which I think is the kind of thing which would, and, and then, then, then of course, have to come up with the sector by sector plans. Um, but, and, and it's, again, it's linked to the COVID recovery plans, as James says, for example, you know, big fiscal stimulus into ret building retrofits, which of course improves the capital stock, reduces the operating costs, and crucially creates a lot of jobs in the short term. Um, so I think I think Alok Sharma, the Secretary of State, 
for business who's also the incoming cop president um was, is, is just coming back from korea i think is just so i think once the headline figure is announced by the prime minister i expect on the 12th i think we could then expect over the following months more concrete policy proposals sector by sector to be laid out so that by the time we get to the cop there's a very clear plan at least for the next five years i think it's reasonable to then have to adjust that every now and again and there are lots of other little bits and pieces that go into the that help you form a, a kind of mosaic of action. Hope, hopefully, one with it's coherent and you can see a pattern. But the, the, um, there's talk of of bringing back or reinventing the green investment bank in a new form um, that's more associated with a, closer to a national development bank or infrastructure bank as we've come out of the European investment bank and and. Uh, you know, and, and suffered real loss of investment power in the UK as a result, we are going to have to create something for ourselves. Um, that's, I, from my intelligence, looking promising, but not certain yet that could come out. There are uh, various acts going through Parliament that are relevant uh, in agriculture, in environment, uh, in fisheries even, uh, that, that will all have a, an effect on some of these items and would be really good to get them sorted before COP26, so we've got good domestic examples to offer up uh, the rest of the world and makes us more credible as a president. Um, that we haven't resolved what we're going to do now that we've come out of Europe with uh, emissions trading and carbon pricing. We've got lots of little bits of carbon pricing. Uh, there's still a debate about what that's going to look like. It may possibly be split between some tradable element and some tax element. Uh, unresolved political issues need to be resolved. Hopefully that will be done during the course of next year. But even so, there's no doubt that carbon pricing or valuing carbon in various ways will be a central part of most industrial economies and their plans as they present them to COP26. So you should be able, should be able to see at the end of next year, several jurisdictions of scale that make a material difference to the global economy and investment decisions in companies like Octopus, whether it's on the pure investment side or the energy side, that says in these jurisdictions, there are these incentives for renewables. In these jurisdictions, there's a carbon price. In these jurisdictions, there's stimulus money available for new infrastructure. Um, and there's a framework you can work with that says, welcome if you've got money, technology, and organizational capacity to make this transition that we need happen faster. That, that's all good for, for Octopus. And it's good for Octopus also in property because in, in real estate, you've got a big sector that's well understood by investors where there are loads of technologies which are readily available, affordably available with the lowest interest rates in living memory and probably historically spectacularly low interest rates, which allow you to overcome the main reason not to <laughs> if you're a developer when, when it comes to making buildings green and, and you know, really, really hyper-efficient at managing energy. Uh, now, if you can borrow at very low cost for a long time, and I've, seen, I've just seen a social bond that's been issued, that's a 50-year bond um, at, you know, at very small you know, basis points. Well, when we tried to do this at Climate Change Capital years ago, we did fine with our property fund, but my word, if we managed to get access to 50 year bonds at basis point cost, boy, we could have done some work 
with green buildings in the UK, especially with affordable housing. So I think that's a sector that's got real potential. You don't suffer if you live and work in a green building. There's no punishment involved. You get data that's re relevant, feedback quite quickly. In We had three metrics in our property fund, water, energy, and carbon, energy in terms of energy efficiency or uh, energy performance. They're not complicated. They all can be measured very easily. You can, you can display the performance on a wall or outside the managing partner's office. It, it's, it's not complicated. Uh, and and it's, it's a big sector and it makes a big difference if you make changes there. Thank you. And, and similarly, what would, you, what would you say to the parts of our business that invest in smaller companies? So we have a ventures team, we invest in AIM, we also lend to smaller companies. I mean, just a couple, a couple of thoughts. I think um, as the major multinationals go through this huge disruption, which is happening in every sector, you know, it's like getting to zero, like 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 Amazon committing to net zero by twenty forty means their whole value chain, right? That that's a massive opportunity for small companies who are often more nimble to r respond to the need of those huge customer you know apple net zero 2030 right um that's a huge opportunity for innovators to capture those new markets so if you're if somebody's selling high carbon products into those value chains now they're not going to be selling that product in 10 years time either they're going to figure out a way to decarbonize it or they're going to be disrupted so i think um uh, first of all it's a huge you know disruption is a huge opportunity for small companies um second of all there's some really good tools available for um, SMEs that the, the International Chamber of Commerce, along with We Mean Business and Exponential Roadmap, have just launched uh, an SME climate hub, which is a is a place for SMEs to signal their commitment to get to zero, um, and then a lot of tools to help help them on the way. And, and that, that the reason that's important is that is that those tools have really only been available for very large, sophisticated companies with full time technical staff, um, and that that's been a barrier, I think, to a lot of SMEs. Um, embarking on this journey. So I think that, that, that there's both an opportunity and now increasingly support available for, for those companies. Can I just, I just would just, I know we're running out of time. I just, I, I want to just to respond to a couple of the questions. L Lauren's question about whether we think there's a motivation to get funds and whole sectors moving responsibly fast enough. I just like to challenge Lauren's framing. You see, I think this is a problem if we think this is an issue of acting responsibly. I think it's an issue of acting intelligently. I mean, if you don't if you don't read the transition and, and are not part of the solutions, then you're going to lose market share or possibly die. I mean, we're, we're seeing that now. Is it 360 billion been written off the value of the European oil majors this year? Right. Because they've been too late. They, they may never be able to catch up because investors may never trust them with a capital again. They may end up having to split into, into new co, bad co. Like as we've seen in electric utilities. So I'd, I'd really encourage you, don't see this as a green or profitable or a responsibility or profitable framing. That, that's, that's, that framing right. is part of the problem. And if you, if you hold on to that framing, you'll make bad decisions because you won't see the opportunities in that convergence that James talked about earlier. Yeah, it, it, this is so true. It is all about innovation of every, and not just technology innovation business model innovation, switching from selling products to services, uh, find, finding ways of making your, your, your business 
you know, more circular, more resource efficient. These are all innovations that start with creativity and imagination and then, and then have to be implemented by capable people. And in a way, I, I would just, I might go further than Nigel. You know, if, if you don't get the climate change issue and you want to carry on being an investor, that's fine, but you're not, you're not investing in the real world. You're investing in a fantasy world where climate change doesn't exist. And if you can't see that the exponential is working in favor of technologies that are challenging the incumbents, particularly in fossil fuels, but not only there, then again, you're going to miss out because that technology is going to, is going to win. I mean, look, renewables is a classic example. Fortunately, you're already in it. But uh, the, 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 the thing is, it's, it is right in front of us happening. But we still need to do more. So we've got to get the feeling that this opportunity is more exciting than the inertia that's held us back uh, for, for many years. So I, I think you're very well placed in Octopus because you've got access to big regulated markets like energy that are changing and you're on the winning side. You're moving in the right direction. And you know, I'm I'm very happy with what Orit is doing right now, and we're going to do more. So that you're going to win there. You're going to have to win bigger, though, because because the the, the, the losers are going to change as well. And they'll, they probably will split. I think the big energy majors probably will split at some stage. And it, it'll all be about access to capital and capacity to do this convergence between making an electron, storing an electron and using an electron. But equally, you've got an investment arm that is looking for, for innovators all the time. And provided you're looking all the time and you're tuned into this transformation that is happening, you'll find them. And then you'll be able to back whatever other, whether it's in software and digitization, probably will a lot of them will be, or just different ways of delivering services that people want and need. Um, you've got to be in that space. You've got to be. Uh, and, and you'll be able to communicate between the two, you know, the big markets and markets that are still small and growing. Thank you. We are out of time. I'd, I'd like to apologise to people whose questions we haven't yet asked. We will, we will answer those by email. Um, just before, well, as we wrap up, can I just ask um, firstly James and then Nigel, just if you've got any words you'd like to wrap up with, and then we will all say goodbye and thanks to all the listeners. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm delighted to have had the chance to speak to you, but I'm equally interested in, in hearing from you and carrying on the conversation. Uh, I think you should simply assess what you do now with this process that's going on somewhat remotely, but we'll do our very best, both of us, to, to keep you connected to it. And ask yourself, what is it that I can do with my own colleagues in my own workplace uh, to advance the, the effort to deal with climate change and do so in a way which provides optimism about the future. Uh, and I think all of those things are in play with the work that you do, and you should be encouraged and feel generally optimistic about our capacity to get to grips with this problem. But we are going to need to bring together the law, the policy, the finance, the technology, entrepreneurship, uh, and do it in a really concerted uh, an effective way in order in order to be successful. Um, 
Well, just to finish, Kat, first of all, thank, thanks for, for, for having me. It's, it's been fun um, catching up with you and, and, and always good talking with James. Um, and, I, you know, it's clear to me that Octopus is in a great place because this, you know, you, you're, you exist for this transformation, really. I, I would just end by saying this is, this is, this is, we're talking about unprecedented systemic transformation. And so be, being aware of the different sources of systems change and it's, it's regulatory, it's, it's social movements, it's, um, it's technology, um, uh, or it, it's, it's investor pressure, it's city mayors increasingly. So being aware of the fact that there are multiple levers that can, that can, that can trigger that sort of cascade of tipping points. And the final point says, I just encourage everyone to brush up on their exponential maths. Um, because um, it, this is not happening in a linear way, and if you get stuck in that linear thinking, then you'll make you'll make bad investment decisions, and you'll you'll you'll, you'll regret that. And there's an increasing amount of good material coming out about the the shape of the transformation that 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 we're in in across multiple sectors. And I think um, that that's something for us all to to make sure we're up to speed with. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot, um, and thanks to all the listeners. Thanks, Kat. Thanks, James. Bye, everyone. Bye, folks. Take care. Look after yourselves.